All right, we are in uh, chapter 17. Uh, did I load up the wrong one? No. No, I didn't. We're just doing a little bit of... Uh, yeah, good. Let's slight review here before we get into it. Okay, so... Verses 7 and 8 of uh, Revelation say this, Then the angel said to me, Why are you so astonished? Some texts say, Why do you marvel? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast which you saw, one was, once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and then go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life, from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because it once was, now is not and yet will come. You know, it's kind of confusing language when you yeah. look at it, but it, it starts to make sense once you kind of peel it apart. So let's look at this a little bit. The angel tells John that he's going to explain the mystery. I can, I can see John, you know, it's like you're seeing this stuff, and again, we don't really know exactly in what form God showed these things to John. Um, so for him to see these things, he was probably very perplexed, didn't quite understand what was going on, and marveled at it for so many different reasons, some of which we talked about last week as we introduced this part, or at least ended with the introduction to this part. So the angel is really quick to say, look, John, don't worry. I'm going to explain to you the meaning that you seek so that you'll have understanding about these things. And so it really what it implies is, and, and we would be just like John. John really couldn't understand it. In whatever imagery God revealed it, it was, it was understandable in one sense. He saw a woman riding a beast, but he didn't know what it all meant, and he didn't know all of the ramifications of it. Kind of so, like us. I'm yeah. sorry? Kind of like us. Kind of like us. Yeah. Yeah. We're yeah. reading Absolutely. the words. Mm -hmm. and, and you know, the truth is, as I was studying this particular part, the second part of uh, chapter 17 this week, and then putting my thoughts down and getting this ready, you know, the reality is this. We can make the mistake of becoming dogmatic about what we think it is. And there are so many, um, I, I'd like to say there are at least a few worthwhile possible interpretations of what all this means. And I don't know that we can absolutely come down on a certain point and say, this is it. There's good indication that the angel is revealing to John certain things that help him understand it. It helps us understand it. But ultimately, will we really know what those things are until they actually happen? It's like all the discussion about, oh, I know what the mark of the beast is, or I know who the Antichrist is. No, you don't. No, it's well, like, you yeah, at best it's a guess. How about just letting it ride, knowing... That at some point there will be a literal mark of the beast. It will be revealed to us. It will be revealed. Yeah. And then it's when that Antichrist steps up on stage and he confirms a covenant with Israel, then we'll know, oh, that's the guy. There won't be any guessing at that point. But still, it's still good, and I'd like to emphasize this, it is still very good to have a general overview of what we can expect in the future. I think that that's really good. And I would also agree with Mark when he talked about the fact this morning that if we allow this stuff to worry us and get us all upset and tense, that's not a good thing. 
But what we need to do is understand what is eventually coming, coupled with the idea and the actually the, the fact that God will provide for his own. And our job is to trust him. He is, he's the perfect parent. He is not going to leave us um, without resources, uh, and, and our job is to trust. So for now, the beast with seven heads and ten horns supplies the woman's power and purpose. I think that's interesting. If you look at this, picture this image, this woman riding this beast. She's dressed in scarlet and purple. The beast is scarlet in color. He's got, you know, the seven heads, the ten horns. Usually when we see the woman riding the beast, just like we would ride a horse, we think of the rider controlling the horse. But in a way, what happens is, there is some control here, but what's interesting here is the beast actually supports the woman and how often do we think about that when we're riding a horse? This horse yeah. is supporting me as mm -hmm. I'm riding it. This horse could actually throw me off, and I'd be in a world of hurt. Or trip and fall. Or trip and fall. Mm -hmm. Remember what happened to uh, Christopher Reeves, the actor who played Superman, mm -hmm. and that poor guy, he's riding his horse. The horse goes to jump over, and I think it tripped up, and he went catapulting over the front, landed on his back of his head, paralyzed from the neck down. I mean, this beast is certainly supporting the woman. And the woman is, in some sense, controlling the beast, but not without limitations. Oh, yeah, John, John was established. Okay, I don't know why. I'm sorry. All right, as mentioned last week, the beast is Antichrist. We know that for sure. And um, what I really wanted to get into this week, because I think it's probably more confusing, is when it talks about, we'll get there, when it talks about the seven kings, five are fallen, etc., etc. So let's just keep going here. Verse 8, let me read verse 8 again. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. All right, that's from the New King James Version. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Now, those three things, was, is not, and yet is, that could be really confusing. How could the beast be there before, but is not and yet is? So what's interesting is the way this is all kind of woven together. So it's really kind of fascinating. As mentioned last week, the beast is Antichrist. Some believe, and I mentioned this way back in the beginning, that this resuscitation of this nation refers to human representation of the beast during the tribulation. So they think that, and I, I used to think this myself, that the beast is slain, the beast as the human being, the Antichrist, is slain, and then is resuscitated or come back, comes back to life. In fact, I remember in the 70s and 80s, there were quite a few commentators who actually believed that and, and uh, taught that. Others believe that this revival or resuscitation refers to a previous empire that Antichrist actually resurrects. And over time, more commentators believe that what really happened here is a resurrection of the old, revised Roman Empire, which also tells you something. 
If the Roman Empire is going to be revived, where is it going to revive in? Europe. Europe. So we know that the EU has been around for I don't know how many decades. Um, there are other nations trying to get into the EU to, to expand its borders. Is it possible that at some point Antichrist will arrive on the scene and either help bring this Roman Empire back to completion or it will already be on its way to coming back when he comes on the scene and then he gains control of it. I think either one is a possibility. So Revelation 13, 3, if you remember, tells us the people of the earth will be extremely impressed and will delight to follow the Antichrist. And by the way, what's interesting about, I shouldn't say interesting, it is interesting, but what makes Revelation a little bit difficult for us is, I was reading another guy, um, John Phillips, really good writer. Um, he, I believe, is dead now, but in the 80s he wrote about Revelation and this whole concept, and he talked about the fact that Revelation, while it's written in somewhat of a chronology, chronological format, one thing happening after the other, there are so many parenthetical aspects to it that that's what makes it confusing. And he likened it to a newscaster talking about a parade as it's coming by. And we've all seen this. Remember years ago with the Macy's parade and all that? Well, the commentators, their job is to talk. Sometimes you wish they wouldn't so much, but their, their job is to talk. And when nothing's going on down there, they may something like this. They may say something like this. You know, I know you couldn't see it, but just a few minutes ago, something happened just before this, this parade turned the corner. Well, what happened, Bill? Well, what's interesting is, and then they tell you what happened. Well, that already happened. But they're telling it to you from this vantage point so that you're taking a break from the actual action to go back and visit something that already happened. And then the commentators may say something like, in just a few minutes, just around the corner, the man in the red you know, with the reindeer and everything, he's going to be landing here, blah, blah, blah. Let me tell you what that's going to look like. Well, that hasn't happened yet from that vantage point. So the, the difficulty in Revelation is we see a lot of that going on, constantly looking back or looking ahead, and then going back to the quote-unquote present. And the present was what John saw at the time as it happened. But if you look at chapter 13, 3, and I saw one of his heads as it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So one of the heads represents, really, a kingdom here. And, one of the, and the, I think what they're talking about is the Roman Empire, because that was the last head that um, was part of this whole train of, of empires. And we'll talk a little bit about that in just a minute. But when this nation is resurrected, and it will appear as though the Antichrist has the ability to do this, the world is going to marvel. Because they're going to go, wow, the Roman Empire is alive again. It seems kind of weird to us, but I think there's going to be a lot of pomp, a lot of fanfare, and it, it, it's just going to somehow impress the world. That's one possible explanation. Now verses 9 and 10 say this, This calls for a mind with wisdom. In the New King James it says, Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Notice here it says the seven heads are seven hills. There are also seven kings. Okay. Five have fallen. One is 
The other has not yet come, but when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. Okay, when I first read this again, I mean, I'm familiar with it, obviously, but when I was putting this together, I thought, you know, I could see why people would be thoroughly confused with this. Really? I mean, we're not stupid people. We're not. We have critical thinking skills, we understand it, but this is just kind of interesting. Because you've got seven heads. It first says that the seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. But then it says they're also seven kings. So ultimately what this is saying is those seven heads represent seven kings. Commentators have come along, especially in the 70s and 80s, and they say, oh, the seven hills, that's Rome. Rome was built on seven hills. And they have a point, it could be, because all the kings in the Roman Empire that came through there, the Caesars, and then eventually Rome, I mean, the whole interesting history of the Roman Empire, all the way through to Constantine, who then became king, and then he adopted Christianity as the state religion, and from that, the papal, the the pope grew, and then Roman Catholicism, I mean, it's just fascinating the way it happened. But what I'd like us to focus on is the fact that the seven heads are seven kings. This is what John is learning. And he's saying, the angel is telling him five have already fallen. What do you mean have already fallen? Well, from John's perspective, five kings have already come and gone. So where John was living, he was, uh, remember he was, he was, what was the, what's the term I'm thinking of? He was sent to, the, uh, he was exiled and sent to the island of Patmos, which is just off Asia Minor or Turkey. So, he being alive at that point, from his life perspective, five of these kings have already fallen. One is, one exists one is. during John's day. So, as the angel was talking to John, He was saying, right now, John, there's one king, one empire alive. Because remember, a king represents an empire. So we're talking about five kings who have fallen, meaning their empires also fell. And now, John, you're living in a day and age where the fifth king, I'm sorry, the sixth, five have fallen, one is. So we're we're at the sixth. John was at the sixth king or sixth empire. The other one has not yet come. So that's in front of John. That's future for John. But when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. Okay. So my belief here is that what we're talking about, and we'll get into who these empires are in just a minute, these five have come and gone. There was one alive and reigning during John's day. The other has not yet come meaning that's still in the future, which I believe ultimately points to the Antichrist. And the beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. Okay, this is... Does that confuse you? Because it can be confusing. Then it says that isn't confusing enough. He belongs to the seven and is going to destruction. So, we've got... In verse 9, the seven heads are seven hills, which are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other one, the seventh one has not yet come, 
But when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. And the beast who once was, now is not, is an eighth king, but he belongs to the seven. Okay, now, okay. hold those thoughts, because it will make very clear sense, I believe, in just a minute. So remember, the angel is telling John, you, you're going to need some wisdom, man. You, you can't figure this out on your own. You are going to need wisdom. And where do we get wisdom? God. That's it. He, you know, we can get smarts. We can do a lot of book learning, learn how to do a ton of things. But wisdom is what comes from God and God alone. Okay, so wisdom is needed to understand seven heads... Are seven hills the woman sits on? There are many interpretations. I won't go into all these, but you know, Rome was built on seven hills, therefore it refers to Rome. I don't think so. Mountains could also refer to both kingdoms and individual kings, mountains or hills, depending on your translations. Therefore, Rome may be the center of Antichrist power. I disagree with that, but that's just me. There are other people who think that the Antichrist is going to be headquartered in Rome. Maybe the false prophet will be. The seven hills or mountains in context could symbolize seven kingdoms and their kings. That's kind of where I am. And you know what? I've said this before. I could be wrong. It's very possible. But it doesn't. I don't lose sleep over that. I just keep plugging away. Lord, what does your word say? What am I missing? What do I need to learn? But, but there are other commentators who say it too. I mean, I'm I'm finding it in my notes, which means I I probably got it from Constable or McGee or somebody else that it's not seven hills. Mm -hmm. No, it the hill always represents a king or an empire because yeah. it, it's a symbol of power. Um, the woman sits over the seven rulers and empires, but she is not one of them. So what it means here is. She exercises authority over them because Babylon, the harlot, always influences these ungodly empires. So that's what that means. From the first empire all the way to the future Antichrist, Babylon, the spirit of Babylon, the corruption, the evil, the godlessness of Babylon will be fully incorporated into these kingdoms in a very growing and real sense until you get to the Antichrist kingdom where it, I guess, fully blossoms for a short time and then Antichrist destroys it and we'll talk about why he does that too. So verse 10 says, uh, let's see, there are also seven kings, five have fallen. Okay, so we went through that. Seven kings. Five have fallen by John's day. One is, that was the one during John's day, and of course we're talking about Caesar, Roman Empire, and uh, the particular Caesar who exiled John, that one, but he also represented Rome. So even though we've had, I don't know, I don't know how many emperors or Caesars there were during Rome. We had Titus, Diocletian, I don't know how many others, right? They all still only represented Rome, the Roman Empire. Right. So the other one is yet to come, or not yet come, and will remain only for a little while. This particular one, the Antichrist, will literally only reign for three and a half years. Yeah. 
very short period of time. He will be around for the entire tribulation, but he will gain, um, I guess, ascendancy and become an absolute imperialist, which is the worst form of fascism and tyranny, for only three and a half years. So who are all these? Well, there are many different interpretations. And, and having studied this, I believe that this makes the most sense if we go all the way back to Egypt. Now, you'll notice something, by the way, in just a minute. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. Now, you're familiar with those, of course, from history, but you're also familiar with these from the Bible, all of these. All right. But notice something here. Um, in Daniel chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar was given that vision, that dream, not a vision, a dream, pardon me. And then Daniel was given the vision and the interpretation of it. Notice the statue that was there in Daniel chapter 2 started not with Egypt or Assyria, but with Babylon, Persia, Medo-Persia, Greece. And then there was another one which wasn't even named yet. As a matter of fact, these weren't named. Babylon, but these weren't named because they hadn't come yet. They hadn't happened yet. They hadn't occurred yet. So Babylon was the one. But if we look back in history, many Bible commentators believe that the hills or the empires were Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. One, two, three, four, five. So those are the five. The one is, that during John's day, was Rome. And again, all of these had multiple rulers over them. You had Nebuchadnezzar. Um, then you had his son, Evil Merodach. And then you had Medo-Persian, Cyrus, Darius. Then you had Greece, Alexander. Then you had Rome. You know, one Caesar after another. So all of them, including Egypt and Assyria, all had multiple rulers over them. But the, the empires basically stayed the same. They may have increased size. They may have reduced in size. Eventually, all of them reduced in size. And all of them went out of existence, with the possible exception of Rome, which lingered for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So that was the one during John's day. The other still to come is the Antichrist's kingdom. But what's fascinating about this is, and this is where I think we're going with this. By the way, this is from John Wolver, Dr. Wolver, in his book on Revelation. He talks about this, and you notice he also agrees that the Gentile empires of the earth were, and Egypt was huge. Yeah. It was probably the greatest of ancient civilizations. Archaeologists have found some amazing, amazing tools. They found tools that the Egyptians used that could cut an exceedingly fine line with, and, and these tools, they were, it's hard to describe, but they were like cutting wheels that worked off of a, a conveyor. I mean, it was really interesting that they were so advanced, uh, which is also why they were able to build things like the pyramids and everything else. Of course, some believe, some believe they had help from demons too, and that's very possible. But these, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Walver breaks it down into this. This is fascinating. The sixth is the historical Roman Empire, that has come and gone. The seventh, 
he believes, is the revived Roman Empire, which is what we're talking about here in chapter 17 of Revelation. It will be revived. But notice the eighth. An Antichrist will be around here. He will be up, active, working to gain ascendancy. But when he gains ascendancy, even though he is part of the seven because he will be part of this government and this empire, which will start in Europe, but then it will become totally global. So at this point, from the revived Roman Empire over which he has rule to some extent, he will then, at the midpoint of the tribulation, he will then gain full dominance of this, and he will actually, at that point, so many things happen. That's when he waltzes into the rebuilt Jewish temple, sits in the Holy of Holies, declares that he is God, demands to be worshipped, and that's also when you can't buy or sell when the mark of the beast is introduced. And if you try to buy or sell, you'll be killed or imprisoned. If you do not worship the beast, you will be executed. He will gain full ascendancy, and those ten kings who rule with him will, we'll get into this, will completely devote themselves to him and his power. And God sets them up to do that for God's purposes. So, here we are, the seven, right? So when it says, uh, where am I? Verse 11, the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven. So right here, he is part of this revived Roman Empire, which is part of the seven. All of these, if you think about it, every one of these empires are all connected in a sense because one is built on the other. They're all of the same, they're cut from the same type of cloth. They're all Gentile. They're all godless. They're all opposed to the one true God. They're all ruled and reigned over by some type of dictator. And again, they're all Gentile. When the seven one, revived Roman Empire, comes into fruition, at some point, um, it, will be, it will be number seven. And then the Antichrist, when he rises to power at the middle of the tribulation... He will basically rest, take all of this empire from the ten kings. That's why they're only going to rule for a short period of time. The Bible says an hour. That's basically hyperbole metaphor. Not it's not it's exactly 60 minutes. Any more than when somebody says, well, I'll be there in about an hour. It's a short period of time. So these kings who get this, and this is what I love about this in a sense. So, but because we don't know if, if this is only the first three and a half years. It's sometime prior to the middle of the tribulation. Yeah. I, here, okay, here's what I think. And I know that a couple people might disagree with me on this. But that's okay. This is just my thinking. I think, because I think that the rapture will happen before the tribulation. Um, and I think it will leave such a huge... Void. Remember what you're talking about. Imagine if millions and millions of people right now disappeared from the face of the earth with no explanation. What the globalists would bring out would be to calm everyone's fears that, don't worry about it, 
the aliens came and took them away to their own planet so they can they can progress spiritually progress at their own level there they were keeping the earth from progressing to the next spiritual plane so we now have the opportunity to move forward without all those malcontents here if you stop and think about it christians and the the church is really because of the holy spirit working through the church and christians is the restraining influence once that is out of the way once that's gone then they're free to do whatever they want to do there is yes there is such a vacuum that'll be filled with such evil so i really believe that and i could be wrong but so but it's not worth that something catastrophic happens. Something catastrophic has to happen. Yeah. Whether it's the rapture or something else entirely, whether it's real World War III, something so catastrophic has to happen that it creates this void and then everybody will demand and expect leaders in this world to stand up and do something to bring unity. That's when I think this Roman Empire is going to rise. And I really think it's going to happen... I could be wrong, way in the beginning of the tribulation. That's the way I think about it. Now, what happens is, as this is in place, it's going to be getting harder and harder and harder for Christians, for believers, to exercise their religious freedom. It'll be increasingly curtailed. So it's going to build up until a point at the middle of the tribulation where this guy right here will waltz into the temple, declare himself to be God, and demand, you talk about mandates, mm -hmm. he will mandate everybody worship him as God. Those who don't will be hunted and executed. So my main point with this, though, is to help us understand how he is one of the seven, but he's also the eighth. Because what he does here is he takes this kingdom and makes it into something that Rome never was. It's going to be much, much worse. And that's why I think in Daniel chapter 2, when he talks about the fact that there will be iron and flesh and they won't blend, it is going to be such a brutal, brutal version of the Roman Empire guided by this guy. And don't forget, he will be fully empowered by Satan. Fully empowered by Satan. He won't just be possessed. And if you look at it this way, this is fascinating to me. Matthew 4. Jesus is led out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted, right? Yeah. 40 days. 40 days. And at the end of 40 days, who happens to come along? <laughs> Satan waited yeah. for 40 days. Sometimes I can't go for four hours and a temptation comes at me and it's like... <sighs> so, here we are. Jesus is now being tempted. He's hungry. He's hungry. He's tired. He's fatigued. He's exhausted. And there comes Satan. At his weakest point, that's when he decides. And who can blame him to tempt Christ? So what does he tempt him with? Well, we know he tempted him. Turn the rocks into bread. You're hungry. God can't blame you for wanting to eat. We know that. Oh, well. And then finally takes him up to the top of the temple and he goes, um, throw yourself off. No, can't do that. Okay. Well, how about this one? See all these kingdoms? I will give them to you 
if you worship me. Satan literally was going after Jesus and wanting him to be Antichrist. That's what that temptation was all about. Now, segue to 2030 or whatever. There will be this guy, and Satan will go to this guy, and he will say the same thing. See all these kingdoms? I'll give them to you. And I'll give you the power to rule over all people if you will worship me. This guy will go, you got yourself a deal. You got yourself a deal. So that's what this is all about. And when he gets to that point and he gains all that supernatural ability from Satan, that's when he takes the revived Roman Empire and turns it into his own kingdom of literal death and destruction for everyone on earth who, do, who does not worship him. So, that's the way I see that. I could be wrong, but that's the way I see it. So, the seventh empire, this last paragraph. The empire number eight is the full global kingdom that Antichrist rules over. The seventh empire is like the previous kingdoms, but Antichrist establishes his own. All of these were very interesting, even though they were kind of the known world, but they were all only in part of the world. Their, their influence may have gone far, but it still did not incorporate the entire world. This guy is going to manage to incorporate the entire world, but it'll start off like this, and it'll start off in Europe. And if you look at what's happening over there in the uh, EU right now, a lot of this stuff is going on. It's just, it, it's crashing everything. It's destroying everything. I think it was Germany who just said, what did they just say? Oh, they're closing all the nuclear reactors, and they're going to pursue wind and solar. The UK has basically said, in 10 years or less, we will have no more airports. We're only going to pursue things that are good for the environment. So what they're doing is they're destroying everything, and this will rise from the ashes. And then when he gets on board and gains power with the pact he makes with Satan, he will be able to take this and turn it into this. Truly a global kingdom. All right, we'll keep going here. Um, and what's interesting is Jesus will destroy this eighth kingdom at his return. And what's fascinating, if you look at history, Every kingdom was ultimately replaced by something else. Mm -hmm. You know, every kingdom. But Jesus is going to destroy this one personally. Because it will be global, permanently, and personally. The Antichrist will be defeated. He will be literally tossed into the lake of fire alive. He won't have to worry about being killed first. He'll just be tossed in there by Christ. Every other empire or kingdom throughout history fell to some outside force, and sometimes it was an inside forces. That's kind of what happened to Rome. They had it both. The Vandals and the Visigoths, the Germanic tribes, started whittling away from the outside, and then the moral corruption and evil within the Roman Empire inside rotted it from the inside out. And if you look at it, what is the United States? Our leadership is so corrupt, so evil. It's almost, if it was... 
a comedy, it would be laughable, but it, it'd be a dark comedy at best. And yet, on the outside, we've got empires like China also whittling away from the outside. So I don't, I don't know that, that the United States has much of a chance to survive unless God intervenes, and I don't think he's necessarily going to do that. If you look at the Old Testament, he didn't intervene um, when Israel got so corrupt and evil and so paganistic and so heathen and anti-God. He just finally said, I'm, I'm throwing you out of my sight. And it started with Israel, the northern kingdom, and then eventually he did that with Judah too. The eighth kingdom will be directly destroyed by Jesus. Okay, verses 12 and 14. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet by John's day. They had not received any kingdom. But they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the Lamb. The Lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Okay. So this is a fascinating because the angel is explaining more of what's going on. Ten horns. He's telling us. There's no guesswork here. The ten horns represent ten kings. Now, wouldn't it have been nice if he just said, and here are their names? <laughs> yeah. But he didn't do that. But at least we know that these are going to be ten kings. So who are they? Ten globalists. The guys who have absolute, they have so much wealth and so much power given to them by Satan right now that they will step into these roles. This is what they're on the sidelines for, I think. They will be the, the ten kings who, don't, who didn't have a kingdom in John's day, still don't have a kingdom in our day, but will have a kingdom. And they will receive authority as kings along with the beast. Well, who gives him the authority? Well, obviously Satan is the direct influencer there. He gives them authority. But obviously God allows it. And it even tells us this. They have one purpose and will give their authority to the beast. They will wage war against the Lamb. God does this. So their purpose is to give authority to the beast. In other words, they bow in loyalty and reverence and obeisance to the beast. And they, they promise to follow him and to support him in, in his endeavors. And in exchange, he allows them to continue to be a king. Now, this is no different than the kings of old. Yeah. Um, in 2 Kings, we were reading this morning that um, uh, Babylon, when they, when they attacked Judah and they took captive the people from Judah, what did those kings often do? What did Nebuchadnezzar do? He would take whoever was the king and either execute or imprison them. And then he would appoint someone to be king. And that person got to stay there as long as they were loyal to Nebuchadnezzar. If they stopped being loyal, if they got a burr under their saddle and said, ah, I'm sick and tired of Cowtown, good old Neb, I'm doing things, let's, let's go then Nebuchadnezzar would come in and deal with it. That was the way every empire. Assyria did the same thing. Egypt did the same thing. They all did this because that's how they were able to control lands that were farther away from them, unlike today, where we have the technology to allow us to be right there. They didn't, so they needed a representative here. That's exactly what Pontius Pilate was to Caesar. He was a representative, so was Herod. Okay, so... This is exactly what they did. These kings will have authority for one hour, a short period of time, 
and they will reign along with the beast, but the beast is going to be the boss. And there are three of them, it tells us in Daniel, that put up a fight and he has to deal with three of them. And the text indicates, he says, he will uproot three of them. A lot of commentators believe that means he's either going to get rid of them out of that position or he's going to physically kill them. And then once the seven remaining see that, they go, okay, yeah, we'll do whatever you want us to do. As long as you let us, just let us be sitting in this king's seat. So who are the ten kings? We don't know. We won't know until they take their places. They will rule for a very short period, one hour. Their purpose is to rule the world. That's And God allows this. That's what's so fascinating about this. One hour, literal. No. Pardon me? No. I don't think so. It's just a, like you said, it's, it means a short time. Just, just a short period of time. They will ultimately give their power to the Antichrist. They'll do that to save their lives and to continue to be in the position of kingship, even though it's not much of a role because they're obviously having to obey whatever the Antichrist says. They will submit to Antichrist's leadership. They will be all in with him. And again, he'll have to put down three, Daniel 7.24, and you can also read a little bit of this in uh, 12, Revelation 12.3, Revelation 13.1, and Revelation 17.3 that we went over, I think, last week. They will fight against the Lamb and lose. This is the battle of Armageddon. This is what, this is the entire... Antichrist will become Satan physical representation on earth. And he will become the global ruler, which is what Satan has always wanted to be, the global ruler. And so when Antichrist steps up to take on this role of global leader, it's all based on this idea that Jesus promised in his word he's coming back. We need to stop that from happening. That's what the whole point is, and I think I mentioned that before. So, in verse 14, this is fascinating. Those who are with him, the second part of the verse, those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Three adjectives, I guess, that describe the same group. Those who believe him, that's us, are called, chosen, and faithful. That's the way he sees us. And the reason we are called is because he called us. The reason we are chosen is because he chose us. The reason we are faithful is because he gives us the strength and ability to continue to be faithful. So those, when Jesus comes back, there are going to be a multitude of believers following him. So I think that that's fascinating. We're in the group. Called elect, faithful, or chosen. Um, all true believers, including those who were martyred during the tribulation. So anybody living during the tribulation who is a believer in Jesus and ultimately pays the final price of their life, those people will be coming back with Christ in absolute victory. And the world will see it. Alright, 15 and 18. 15 through 18. Uh, then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So that tells us right there, 
The waters represent all the nations of the earth. Okay? And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot. See, this is fascinating. Make her desolate and naked. Eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Okay, so there it's telling us that these kings will do what they're going to do because God has put it in their hearts to do it. To be of one mind and to give their kingdom, their support to the beast until the words of God. And they don't even realize that. But this is interesting here, verse 16. They will bring her to ruin, leave her naked, they will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Does that remind you of anybody in the Old Testament where that happened to? Kind of. Jezebel, maybe? Remember Jezebel? She was so despicable. She was the powerhouse behind King Ahab, who was weak, godless, afraid. He was a real wuss. And he did whatever... I mean, Jezebel did it all. And she introduced into Israel, big time, Babylon. The spirit of Babylon. Paganism, heathenism, all of it. Godlessness. This woman is represented by that spirit of Jezebel. And so she will be at a point during the tribulation where the Antichrist realizes he no longer needs her because he doesn't want to share any glory. So the woman, the harlot, the religious form of Babylon was getting glory, the religious system. They were getting worship. Well, Antichrist doesn't want anybody else worshipped except him. So I need to get rid of the woman now because she is competing with worship that should only be given to me. So he will then turn on her, destroy her, and literally plunder her, steal all of the wealth of whatever this false religious system looks like during the tribulation. He will expose her corruption... The world will see it and be glad. And in in a sense, they will, this is all, I guess, metaphorical, but like Jezebel's flesh was eaten by the dogs, she will be utterly destroyed. Utterly. The harlot. So it's going to happen again, probably at the midpoint, when he basically takes what was the revised Roman Empire and makes it an eighth kingdom globally. And at that point... He doesn't need Babylon anymore because he will be the ultimate and only point of worship. So, and it's also at this point when Antichrist breaks covenant with Israel and demands to be worshipped as God. This is also when the Jews realize what's going on, that remnant that God has chosen that they're not even aware of during this point of the tribulation and they run for the hills and God protects them for three and a half years. The second part of the tribulation. So God's sovereignty decrees this, and it is the beginning of the destruction of Satan's kingdom. This is where Satan becomes divided. And a house divided shall not stand. Christ said that. So the great city here is probably, it could be referring to um, a revised physical Babylon, because Antichrist has to have his headquarters someplace. 
And it could be referring to that, but it's also definitely referring to the metaphorical or mystical Babylon that undergirds. I mean, I think it could, it is like, I don't know, I just think of a monetary system. Like, because, I don't know, I just think today, greed just drives so much. Greed, greed, greed. Oh, yeah. So, Washington, D.C. Would it be at a point where... I don't know, maybe there is no money. Maybe, you know, because they're all crying over the destruction of Babylon, maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it obviously interrupts the way um, the merchants, all the businesses yeah. interact and work together. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to it, and it's certainly going to impact the world. But Antichrist doesn't care as long as yeah. he is worshipped. Yeah, 